Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, November 4th, we are studying Amos chapter 5, verses 4 through 9. The prophet speaks the Lord's word to his people that they would seek him, seek him not in their idolatrous shrines, but in the place where he has promised to be for their salvation. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Steve Andrews. Pastor Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, and good morning. Pastor Andrews, as we get started this morning, give us some context on the book of Amos. How do we get to the text that we're looking at today? Sure. Well, we, we keep in mind uh, the time frame of this text as Amos is writing in the 8th century B.C., so whether it's in the 750s, 760s, somewhere in that time period, Amos is the prophet of the Lord who is sent to speak God's word to God's people. That includes the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah. These are the, the people that God had hundreds of years prior at this point, even almost, you could almost say thousands, a couple thousand years ago with Abram. And then as you get into the Exodus period through Moses leading the Israelites out of slavery and they become their own nation, they reach the promised land, they sin against the Lord and they do so frequently. And we see different patterns, different cycles emerge of the people grumbling and complaining and sinning and rejecting God. And then God allowing them to face punishment, sometimes even more directly bringing that punishment. And then there's a, a crying out, there's a repentance, and we see, especially in the book of Judges, as God raises up deliverance for them, and then this all repeats itself again and again. And so the Lord has sent Amos at this point in history. This is past uh, the, the founding of the king of Israel, uh, several generations have moved on now. You've gone past Saul and David and Solomon and the ones that we know so well. We're into names that started this letter that most of us really don't know as well. We don't know as much about guys like well, Uzziah or Pekah, um, who are some of the kings at this in this era. And yet God has still sent Amos to them. Well, these are the Israelites. These are his chosen people. And yet they are rebelling against him. They're doing all kinds of wickedness, um, primarily in the text we look at today. We're going to see that focus on the, the idea of their worship. We'll see that especially in verse 5. So the, the worship life is certainly a, a big deal in the text that we've got before us today. But before we look at the text that we're going to look at, just a, a, a thought, Pastor Andrews, one of the things we've seen in Amos thus far is that Amos is a lot of law. I mean, a lot of calls to repentance. There's not much gospel, and, and many of our guests, and rightly so, bring up the end of Amos in chapter 9, where you do get a promise that's very clearly pointing us forward to Christ. But it seems that here in chapter 5, and maybe it's a bit more in the text that comes right prior, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 5, we have a little bit of a glimmer of the gospel here in chapter 5. What do you I mean, do you see that here in this text? Is that something we should notice? I think there is some of it. It's one of those one of those difficult things, especially in the minor prophets in general. I mean, whether it's Amos or some of the others, there is a lot of law because of what the prophet has been sent to do. He has been sent to a people who are sinning, uh, who deserve God's judgment, and he's trying to call them out of that, to call them to repentance. And we're going to see some of that in this text uh, verse 4, the idea, seek me and live. Um, well, why do we live? And that's one of those wonderful things as we actually delve through the depths of Scripture. One of the things we realize is that there actually is no life apart from God himself. Jesus speaks that way even about the resurrection. In the last day when he returns, all people will be raised. 
but those who believe in him will be raised to life, while those who did not believe in him will be raised to judgment. So the scriptural speaking on this word life is a is a helpful one as we look at verse 4, as you mentioned, in light of the gospel. Very good. Let's take a look at the, the verses we have before us. Again, we're in Amos chapter 5, starting at verse 4, going through verse 9. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour, with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, and turns deep darkness into the morning, and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. There's the, the text that we have before us, Pastor Andrews. And as you've, you've pointed out already for us, one of the key themes is seek me, seek the Lord, and live. Keep, keep digging into that matter of that only in the Lord is life. He is the one who created all things. As we look to Genesis 1, the wondrous acts of God creating, as he simply speaks and everything comes into existence, he gives us the gift of life. And he continues to, to work in his creation. He continues to uphold and sustain life. We, we learn that as, as Lutherans when we look at our catechisms and we talk about all the things that the Lord provides us to sustain this life. We're not actually in the Lord's Prayer just praying for our daily bread. Um, the literal food that we eat, but we're asking God to provide all that we need, and he does. So he sustains our life in this place, which is part of that, that wonderful gift that he has given to us. But not only that, then as we know uh, that we are sinners, that we have not followed God perfectly, just like we were discussing with Israel, uh, the Lord has promised us salvation. He's promised forgiveness. He's promised redemption. So he's not only created us, but he's even given his own life in order that we might have life. So as we talked about Jesus on the cross, um, we always talk about Jesus on the cross because it is that, that gift of his that is so wonderful and it uplifts us. It gives us that hope and that encouragement. And when you combine it with the resurrection of Easter morning, that we can look forward, we can take whatever this world and this life now throws at us because we get to be with God forever. And so in verse four, that's what God is pointing these people to seek me and live. He's so he's urging them. Sorry, go ahead and keep going. Yeah. He's, he's just encouraging them in this. Uh, you know, we have the idea uh, for our church calendar here. Advent is not far from us. God is coming. He is coming soon, and for them, uh, that was the unfortunate demise that is actually the, the referent of that. But in repentance, it, it is the, the advent of Jesus Christ, His coming that we look forward to as the Church. Yeah, this, this matter of, of seeking the Lord is connected to life, and perhaps for the people of Israel hearing these words— there's a bit of question as to whether or not it is actually good to seek the Lord when you consider all that he's spoken against them, in particular the words right before this, this funeral dirge, this lament of woe that, that has just been spoken. Why would we seek after the Lord? Well, he answers that question here. Seek so that you would have life, because that's ultimately what what the Lord wants for his people. So so Pastor Pastor Andrews, Help us with that connection of those two those two verbs together, right? We see them here and again in verse six as well. Seek the Lord and live. How do those two verbs go together? We see them in verse fourteen of this chapter as well. Um, yeah, they they fit together very well. So the the call to seek the Lord and live for us connects us to the the first few commandments, uh, the Ten Commandments, the first table of the law. 
uh, that we would love the Lord our God uh, with all of our heart and soul and with all of our strength. So we seek Him. We we look to God. Um, this kind of comes in with that, that language that we as God's people, we are to obey Him. That's not just do what God says, but it's actually to to listen, to hear, um, in this case, to seek, to follow. We don't always do it perfectly. God knew we didn't do it perfectly even before he created us. And he even at that point had planned to send a Savior for us. Um, he is calling us to seek him and by seeking him, which in this context involves repenting, um, we get to live. Immediately following this with verse 5, that seeking becomes more clear. Uh, it becomes connected to the idea of worship. Seek me as opposed to seeking these these other things. So this matter of seeking the Lord is not some abstract spirituality that lets you do or think or feel whatever happens to seem right to you. The Lord has a specific way of seeking after him. And here he identifies the the ways that aren't correct. So so he says, seek the Lord and live, but then he, he mentions several places where you are not to seek the Lord. What's what's going on here, Pastor Andrews? Well, first I want to point out that it's a, it's a Hebrew form of poetry that we're looking at. Uh, many of us might remember from our school days learning different poetic devices, like the rhyming schemes that we might use. And so you might do an A, B, A, B, which means the first line and the third line rhyme and the second and the fourth rhyme. Well, for the Hebrew people, their language, this is a chiasm. It is, uh, in a sense, it would be A, B, C, B, A. The first thing and the last thing match. The second and the fourth thing go together, and then there's one in the middle. We saw that in Genesis 3 with the fall, as Adam looked, uh, God looked at Adam and then to Eve and then punished the devil before uh, punishing Eve and then back to Adam. There is an order, there is a, a hierarchy to that, as God had placed Adam in the position of, of headship and leading his family, uh, and then the devil in the middle, just kind of stuck in the middle of the sandwich, didn't have that authority. So he doesn't have that chance for accountability in Genesis 3. And we see that same pattern appear here in uh, Amos 5.5. 5. So we get Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba, and then back to Gilgal, finally Bethel. These are three sites, three places that are, that are worth digging into a little bit. Um, Bethel is in that same pattern. Bethel connects there like Adam did. Bethel is the, the most important of them. And Bethel, which in Hebrew means house of God, got that name from, from Jacob back in Genesis 28. It's where he had had the dream, Jacob's dream of the, the staircase to heaven, the angels ascending and descending, and God had come to him and renewed that promise that he had once made to his grandfather before him. Jacob later returned to Bethel, and it's a place where that promise is renewed again for him. God reiterated his name being changed to Israel. It had become, at this point in history, probably, I don't know, 1,600 years later, whatever we are at this point, it had become the hub, the center of worship in the nation of Israel. Now, this has been briefly touched upon before, the idea that the kingdom split, Israel and Judah divided, and when that happened, the new king over Israel, the northern kingdom, did not want his people leaving his country to go south of the border into Jerusalem and worshiping God there. So he established two worship sites of his own. Bethel is roughly 10 miles north of Jerusalem. They're just on opposite sides of the border. And he built a golden calf there for them to worship. So this is the, in essence, this is the, the center attack here. Uh, God is, is speaking significantly against Bethel. Um, mm. Gilgal and, and Beersheba also have great importance uh, in their own ways in the Old Testament. 
Gilgal from Joshua 4.9 is where the Israelites had, had chosen to camp before they'd attacked Jericho. It is where uh, in Joshua 5, we see Israel set apart as God's people. They re- re-celebrate the Passover. Uh, the book continues. Joshua 9, it's set up as a site for military operations. Saul's monarchy is confirmed there in 1 Samuel 11. So Gilgal has its own importance to the king kingship and the, the authority over the people of God. And then Beersheba we see God speak to the patriarchs there in Genesis. He speaks directly to to Isaac and Jacob in particular, and he speaks through others. Um, the, the words of blessing are shared with Abraham by Abimelech. So these places at one point had been places God had interacted with his people. He had blessed his people. But now they're the opposite. Instead of promises of, of of good from the Lord, the only thing connected with Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba at this point is death because of their idolatrous false worship. The fact that these three spots in particular can all trace their background to important Old Testament events makes them particularly deceptive sites of idolatry. You can imagine Jeroboam I, when he set up the two shrines with a golden calf, one in Dan and one in Bethel. You can just imagine the PR campaign that he and his false priests would have put on, especially for Bethel. This is the place where Jacob had his dream. This is the place where Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Of course, the Lord is going to be pleased that we would worship here. And and similarly with, with both Gilgal and Beersheba, when you trace their historical background, they certainly look to the eyes of sinful man as God-pleasing sites. But but you're exactly right that at this point in history, they do not have God's promise. The Lord has promised that he has put his name in Jerusalem at the temple there, and that is where the people are to go. It, 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 Moses is very clear about this in the book of Deuteronomy in more than one place when it comes to the, the place where God chooses to put his name. That's where you are to go. These other places, they've got this great pedigree, historically speaking. But the important thing is they don't have the Lord's promise. And so to go to these places, as religious as it would have looked, as wonderful as the history sounds— is in fact sinning against the Lord, and and this I mean I think I think there's there's some good practical application that we can make with this, Pastor Andrews, when it comes to worship. You you mentioned earlier that one of the themes we're seeing in this text is the worship life of the people of Israel. When we think about what's going on in Israel in eighth century BC that Amos is preaching against. How do we take this and use this as Christians today in the 21st century? Well, we certainly have our idols today. Um, we can we can take things that were gifts given to us by the Lord, and we can abuse those things. We saw that New Testament era as the old covenant's coming to a close. God is upset with the way that is. His promises that, that he had given have been treated, and there are, are ways that we could certainly delve into that we do that today. And how often do we, as a church in general, as God's people, take the promises that he's given to us and and just downplay them? I mean, Luther touches upon that in the, his explanation of the, the third commandment with remembering the Sabbath day and that we would actually go to church, hear his word proclaimed, um, rather than thinking that we can just be wherever we want and, and have that relationship with God apart from what God has set set for us. But other ways, too. I mean, we talk about the, the blessings we get and things like baptism and the Lord's Supper, and yet as a greater church in Christianity today, we can't even agree on those two topics. I mean, who does the work? Is baptism something God has done for me, or is it something I do for him? Is the Lord's Supper a, a thing he does for me, or that 
I do for him. We we can't even agree on those things. So there's a lot of harm that I think we we do to to things, and it reflects then in how we worship him. I want to I want to focus in on the first thing that you mentioned. This matter of of as we often will just say, right? The third commandment: go to church, right? You can't just be wherever you want. I mean, how, do, how does that work, Pastor Andrews? Here, here again, just to keep it in context with what we're talking about with Amos, the Lord says, seek me and live. He wants you to seek him, but he wants you to seek him in the way that he has given to you. So how does that thought from Amos and the way that he connects it to Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba, how does that connect to, to us and as, as Christians today, and, and when your pastor might say to you, yes, you need to go to church. <laughs> I mean, how does that connect to what Amos is saying here? For me, the connection point on that is Hebrews chapter nine. I know it's outside of Amos for us, but when you That's look okay. at worship and <laughs> when we look at worship in the old Testament, uh, and you actually look at how the word is used and what the people are doing, we learn that the idea the focus and the goal of worship actually is the forgiveness of our sins as God's people. And for them in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, um, that meant the sacrifices, the various gifts and offerings that people were to bring to God in order to earn that limited uh, forgiveness that came with that. Um, You know, to sacrifice a bull and you have your sin forgiven. Well, there aren't enough bulls in the world to forgive all my sins. And so Hebrews 9 shares with us that in the New Testament, in Christ, all of our sins have been forgiven. And so as worship remains focused on the forgiveness of sins, it, be, it goes from being an act that we have to do to being an act that God has done for us. So in worship, instead of me bringing my offering to the Lord for forgiveness, God is granting me, he is giving to me his forgiveness. So then as pastors, and as many of you have probably heard your pastor instruct you, um, you should come to church because it is the place God has promised. Just like it was with Jerusalem in Amos's day, this is where they were to go. This is where the promise was. This is where the Lord's presence was today in the church through the gifts I mentioned before of baptism and the Lord's Supper, absolution, the preached and proclaimed word. We are hearing and receiving that wonderful gift of forgiveness God has given to us. Can the Lord forgive our sins in other ways? I suppose he could, but he hasn't promised that. We actually have the scriptures that point us to the idea he has promised to do it this way. And in the church is where we find those things. When I describe it to the... Sorry, keep going. Go ahead. No, no, I'm not trying to interrupt you. I'm sorry. I thought you were pausing. Keep going. Well, when I try to describe that to the kids in my confirmation class, I usually use a a simple illustration for them. Um, I open up my wallet. I grab out a $20 bill, and I ask them, you know, every time you say hello to me, if I were to give you a $20 bill, how often are you going to say hello to me? Uh, And the answer is, well, all the time because it's something they want. They want that $20 bill. Well, the Lord has promised that every time you hear those words of forgiveness, your sins are forgiven. Every time you receive the Lord's Supper, your sins are forgiven. And how much better than a $20 bill is that? It's this wondrous gift. Um, And because I sin daily and I sin much, I want to hear and receive that gift as often as possible. What I love about your answer is that you connect it to the forgiveness of sins and the Word as the place where God has promised to be. And we talked about that when we were doing Exodus here on Sharper Iron, that the importance of the tabernacle is that this is the place where God has said he will be for your forgiveness. You don't have to go out and find him somewhere on your own by your own self-made works. He tells you where he's going to be. So go there, right? This is this is where you're going to get the forgiveness of sins. So go there. And and the thing about about the church today, then, it's it's not like it's attached to the building. And see, I think as as I was thinking through this myself as to maybe some of the applications for us today, 
you know, how how often do we get attached to in the church a specific building that that our church worships in? And now it, it's very good that we have a building. It's good to have a place here in Texas, particularly that we have air conditioning that we can hear God's word. You know, we're inside, we're out of the rain. This is good, but it's not about the building per se. And so, how how easy would it be for us, you know, to to think about Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba? Well, I'm in the building, right? Well, what are you hearing in the building? That's the point. What's the word that's being preached? And if it's the true word, whether it's preached in your church building or outside somewhere, that's the key. That's where God has promised to be. And that, that is where he wants you to seek him, is in his word where he delivers to you the forgiveness of sins. That's the forgiveness of sins that you hear here on Sharper Iron as we study his word together. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Monday, November 4th, we're studying Amos 5, verses 4 through 9, with Pastor Steve Andrews of St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, prior to the break, we left off with verse 5. We're looking now at, at verse 6. The Lord, Amos repeats the Lord's word, seek the Lord and live. And now again, he, he gives the reason, right? Lest he break out like Fire. Now, there's that word fire again. We we saw that fire judgment coming in chapters one and two against the six pagan nations, against Judah. It was missing from the oracle against Israel, but now here it is again in chapter five. Lest the Lord break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. Pastor Andrews, help us through verse six. Well, we see, as you mentioned, the repetition. When God repeats something, we should be paying attention to it. So seek me and live. Don't seek me in these other places where I have not promised you I will be. Instead, seek me here. And so he goes back to that. And there is a warning that is attached to it. If you're not going to do this, if you aren't going to seek me, here's what's going to happen. And he calls them back to the faithfulness of one of their forefathers. I mean, he could have just as easily said the house of Israel as he had earlier in the chapter, uh, but he doesn't. He refers to Joseph. Uh, Joseph is, is lifted up as a good example of faithfulness for them, someone who trusted in the Lord. Uh, and because he trusted in the Lord, the, the ways of his life were, were blessed. The Lord cared for and provided for him. There was justice, there was righteousness in the way that he dealt with his brothers and and the very ones who tried to kill him, he forgave them. So it may not be the justice and righteousness that we expect, but it's going to point us uh, to something we'll be talking about more through the rest of this section, which is the justice and righteousness of God that is found in Jesus Christ. So yes, there is the warning here that there will be an unquenchable fire in Bethel. So the idolatrous things, those who have rejected God's ways, it connects with what Jesus warns us about in Mark chapter 9, in verse 48, he said, the worms do not die, the fire is not quenched, uh, referenced essentially to the idea of hell. So there's this fire in verse 6, you're saying, is is a bit more than just burning fire. There's certainly a literal aspect to it, but but you're suggesting that here in verse 6, the prophet, and, and then as the New Testament picks this up, we're talking about a little bit more than just earthly fire, yes? Yeah, I mean, if it were just a, 
uh, we have a fire in the house of Joseph. We're not talking about some guy named Joseph and his house burning down. Um, we're talking about the ancestor and, and the, the house of Joseph is all of the Israelites who had lived in Egypt. We're talking about millions of people. It's that house, that family that would be caught on fire. So, yeah, it's a reference to the, the unquenchable fires of hell. And, and I think that that thought of the eternal nature of this judgment is is picked up a little bit in some of the language then of verse 7. The, the Lord, who who is he talking to? He's talking to the ones who turn justice to wormwood, who cast down righteousness to the earth. And you've mentioned already, Pastor Andrews, justice and righteousness as key terms. And, and I think we can we can look at those in depth. But before we get into that, just help us with the the nuts and bolts of this verse. First, you know, what is wormwood? And then I mean, what does that mean turning justice into wormwood? What does it mean to cast righteousness to the earth? What what's the basic picture we've got in verse seven? Well, the picture we have in seven is actually the opposite of the picture that we're supposed to have. So we're supposed to have justice, we're supposed to have righteousness, but Israel has polluted, they have destroyed these things. So wormwood is, um, uh, it's a word we don't know very well, so it is a bitter herb. It's seen in a few other references in Scripture. Uh, I was also uh, hinted at uh, in the book of Proverbs, uh, chapter 5, it shows up meaning bitter. In Lamentations 3, it appears, and it means bitter. It, it, it's later in Lamentations 3 as well, meaning affliction. In Amos 6, it is the opposite of uh, the sweetness that is fruit, so it's bitter. And then in Revelation 8, we actually learn that it is not just bitter, but it is a deadly bitter. Um, so that's where we kind of get the idea of, of the wormwood here being a bitterness, is because it's pretty much every other time it shows up in Scripture, that's how this word is used for us. So they've taken justice. They were supposed to care for those in authority, those who had the, the power uh, to care for those who were in need or who had been wronged. And instead of caring for them, they had dealt with them terribly. That's the bitterness that's going on here. So there's a divide. Now, the, the righteousness then uh, the, break it down simply to the, the first part of the word, to do what's right. And they're not doing that either. They have cast that down. If you can picture somebody just taking something on a muddy day and slamming it into the, the ground below them and then just walking on it because they're so frustrated, uh, just burying it into the mud, they've done that. They've treated the ways of the Lord, the good and righteous things that he has given to them, and they've just trampled them under their feet as though they were worthless and, and didn't mean anything. So that's the, that's the opposite picture. This isn't what it's supposed to be, but this is what you've done. Mm. So the, the turning justice to wormwood, justice being the idea of upholding what is good, protecting those who are in need, I think is a good way of looking at it, especially in light of everything else that Amos preaches and how central that is to his preaching. They've turned this matter of upholding what is good and right and protecting the weak, they've turned that into a bitter poison, you might even say, that Re Revelation 8 passage that you connected. When, when they should have been upholding life, they were poisoning it. And then righteousness being, you know, those things that are right, what have they done? They've, they've taken that and they've just trampled it into the ground. So, so with that thought in mind, then, this being a picture of the opposite of what it should be, help us to, to understand what it should be. Dig, dig more into those terms for us, justice and righteousness. Sure. Well, we have the, the real picture appears in verse 24 of this chapter. So later on... Uh, whether that's whatever the next couple of days of our, our listening together will, will be. Uh, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The picture Amos gives us of justice and righteousness is that it's ever-flowing. It, it's surging forth. It's cleansing. It's continuous for us. 
as you mentioned, yeah, uh, justice, a good idea of upholding those uh, who are in need. These are things that God has given to us. We have justice in God. We have righteousness in God. And all the more now, we have these things fully again as his people today. I mean, that's other prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah that are going to use uh, references to a righteous branch or a righteous twig or shoot or a sprout that comes forth, uh, referring us to Jesus. Uh, Jeremiah 23 is a great example. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. We have these these wonderful gifts of justice and righteousness again because they flow to us from God's grace in Jesus Christ through the gifts we've already talked about, baptism and, and the Lord's Supper, these wonderful things. Christ continues to give these to us today. Um, it is now for us, if we were to put ourselves into this conversation, how do we then show justice and righteousness? It would be by caring for those around us. We do what the Lord has given us to do. We love our neighbor. We give of ourselves instead of focusing on on me, me, me all the time. And, and how can I get ahead in life? How can I take care of me? How can I take care of those around me? The connection that you made there with Jesus and Jeremiah 23, I think is very important for us as we think about terms like justice and righteousness, because the temptation for us would be to take those terms and see them exclusively, or to see them as the first thing, as things that we do. Justice and righteousness, first and foremost, are things that God gives to us. He gives us justice. And I, I like to throw this out for people just to help them think about it. The Lord gives us justice by giving us justification, to use that, that biblical term that we often use. He justifies us. That's how he gives us justice. And God gives us righteousness. This is the one of the key discoveries for Martin Luther when it comes to the Reformation, that when Scripture speaks about the righteousness of God, this is not what God requires us to do to be righteous. Rather, it is God's gift to us by which he makes us righteous. And so when we think about justice and righteousness paired here in the book of Amos and elsewhere in the scriptures, we need to start there, that these are God's gifts to us. He does them for us. He gives them to us, justice and righteousness. And then from there flow the acts of mercy to our neighbor, as, as you rightly say. And that's, I mean, I think that's exactly how Amos is laying it out here, even in these verses, because he started with the matter, seek me and live. Get your worship life right, Israel. Come to the place where I've put my name so that you would receive the forgiveness of sins. Come and receive justice and righteousness from me. And then, having been made right with God, where does Israel go? To enact justice and righteousness for their neighbor, rather than, than turning it into poison and trampling it into the mud, but actually to uphold these things and do them for our neighbor. And so once again, here in the book of Amos, what we're seeing, and we're going to continue to see it, is how these two things go together. Idolatry and injustice are connected to each other, as is the true worship of God and then love toward the neighbor go together. And, and he connects them for us once again. So this matter of, of righteousness and justice, these are God's gifts to us. And then they flow out in our lives of love for the neighbor. Uh, Pastor, Pastor Andrew, do you want to respond to that or, or you want to keep moving? Uh, you said it very well. We start with God, we end with God, and we do well when we do that. Mm, mm, yeah. So let's take a look then. Verses verses 8 and 9 really, I think, form a, a bit of a unit. And we've we've seen this in the book of Amos already, and we'll see it yet again, where Amos refers to God in a hymnic way, in, in, in a hymn, and he refers to God as 
uh, the Creator. So, Pastor Andrews, maybe give us just the sort of overall picture of verses 8 and 9 before we dig into the words themselves. Well, the overall picture is actually using that word, God is over all. Um, that is the point of this hymn. He's in control of all things, not just uh, the little things here in, in our daily life, not just the bigger stuff that's out and beyond us, um, but he's God over everything, heaven and earth. And so how do we see that come about in verse 8 to start off with? It refers to God who made the Pleiades and Orion. What are we, what are we talking about here in verse 8, Pastor Andrews? Sure. Well, Pleiades and Orion are a couple of names for constellations that the Lord has made. So when you look up into the night sky and you see all those uh, beautiful stars that fill the heavens, God made all of that, you know, especially in Amos' day, but it's still true of us, even with our scientific advances. We can't touch the stuff out there. I mean, maybe we can see it through a telescope a little bit closer up. But we can't touch that, and yet God not only touched it, God made it. Uh, those things are His. So God has authority over the entirety of this universe, even the things that we, you and I, have no authority over, is, is the way that this hymn starts. God made that. Um, is a wonderful kind of conversation. And then we see this turning idea. It's, it's the opposite of what Amos had just said. In verse 7, the Israelites have turned justice to wormwood. They've taken something good and made it bitter. Here, God takes darkness, and he makes it mourning. He takes the thing that is not good, and he makes it into something that is good. Israel's ways were leading them to death. God's way leads them to life. Israel undermined his creation, but God is sustaining his creation and will even give his creation new life in Jesus Christ. The darkness of day into night kind of gives us the warning that the time is short. Um, as we think about it ourselves, uh, I guess it's a fairly cloudy day when I look out my window, but we have the sunshine in the daytime, and it's not long after that the night arrives, and it's no longer bright outside. God has the authority, he has the power to do that, it's his creation, but it's also kind of metaphorical in the sense that God's patience with Israel doesn't last forever. Jesus speaks that way in the New Testament in a few different places. John 9 is a good example of that, that day-night imagery. He tells us that we should work while it is still day as we are the disciples of the Lord and we are sharing the good news with others, there's a limited time to do that, and we should do that while we can, is the picture we get there. So if, if I can, uh, but, just, just briefly, yeah. to, to jump in there, the, the thought of the Pleiades and Orion as these constellations, these are used here as, this is as big and as powerful and as majestic as you can get. And so the Lord, the one who's commanding you to seek him and live, he's the one who did that. And so that that power, the authority of God that he has, as you said, over all is conveyed. And and what's he going to do with that? Well, he, he turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night. It would seem then that the way Amos is preaching here is he's giving the people, uh, again, that, that glimmer of gospel here, that if the one who made the Pleiades and Orion is also the one who turns darkness into the morning, then for those who seek him, there is great hope. And, and yet, then when he comes in with darkening the day into night, it, it's as if, but don't take his grace for granted. Seek him now, today, while it is still day, before it turns into night. And so, it, I mean, I, I think, Pastor Andrews, and, and I'll let you continue after this, but but the what it sounds like is that Amos, in this hymn of as God as Creator, is still doing his work of preaching, calling his people, calling the people of Israel to repentance, to place their their trust in the one who's doing these things. Is that is that a fair thing to say? Definitely. I mean, that's a, that's even what we hope our hymns are doing today is that they're <laughs> they're teaching us, they're drawing us to uh, understand more about Christ and and who He is and what He's done for us. So yeah, Amos preaching here fits very well. Um, I, I like the way that you were 
uh, summarizing these little snippets, these word pairs that are coming together here. So then after this matter of, of darkness into morning, day into night, then then the imagery changes a little bit, though it's still in the realm of creation. And this is a very common one that we see when we think about Lord as the Lord as creator, is this matter of of what he does with the water. So so what does the Lord do with the water here in Amos chapter nine? Well, the Lord takes the water out of the ocean and he dumps it upon the earth. Um, the picture here may very well be a reference to what happened hundreds of years earlier in the flood, as God took the waters both out of the heavens that we learn in Genesis 7, I think it is, that the floodgates of the heavens are opened, but also that the, the waters of the earth are drawn out as well. Uh, just a incredible drowning um, act as all this water has come together and been poured upon God's earth. Um, so I I read that line in this spot as, a, in a sense, continuing on that theme of day turning into night, that the judgment is coming, that God is is going to to call about judgment upon those who have not treated uh, justice and righteousness the way they ought to have. Yeah, the any time the the waters come up in the scriptures, there's there's tons of different images, and it, it would seem that the image of the flood is is a key here when you think about Amos's call to repentance and the way that he speaks of God's judgment to bring to mind for the people of Israel the matter of the flood would hopefully have been quite the wake-up call for them. Now, they've got the Lord's promise that he's not going to destroy the earth that way again, but still, the matter of that judgment being poured out, again, Amos is, is putting that out there for the people to to come to repentance. And then, as he does in, in each of these hymns that he has here in his book, he identifies the Lord, Yahweh. That is his name. And then he, he adds more, I think, he's got more light, dark imagery, more um, judgment imagery as well with this matter of, of destruction flashing forth as, as it continues into verse 9. What What's there, Pastor Andrews? Sure. Well, before I do that, I just wanted to point out, you love the language you used, that God pours out his judgment. God poured out his judgment upon his own son. Mm. And we talk about Jesus pouring out his own blood for us as we, you know, we think of imagery and, and language we use in connection to the Lord's Supper today, that this is his blood shed for, poured out for us. Um, God's judgment, which we rightly deserved, got put upon his own son. So I wanted to, to draw that out since you had brought it up. But with verse 9, yeah, I mean, God makes destruction flash forth. I mean, we can think of that illustration in a couple of different ways. Really, when do we think of light flashing forth? Most people, I think, might go straight to the idea of lightning, which gets a couple of references in Scripture as well. But lightning comes, and just as soon as it comes, it's gone. It's just a quick flash that stretches across, lights up the whole night sky sometimes. It can be really neat to see. Um, or the other idea we could pick up an illustration of would be just turning on the light switch. You're sitting in the dark, you have to flick on the switch, and the light flashes forth. The room is lit up. So here, this is a, a note of judgment. Destruction flashes forth against the strong. The strong, you know, the, the man who is self-sufficient, or the man who uh, thinks that he can take care of himself or save himself, the one who thinks he can stand before God, and be okay, destruction flashes forth. There isn't even a, a chance. I mean, you think of a lightning bolt coming. You can't stop the lightning bolt from striking you if you're in the wrong spot at the wrong time. It's just going to happen. And that's the kind of destructive quickness, the judgment quickness that is going to come upon those who don't uh, repent of their sins. And the, the second line of, of that in verse 9 essentially very much the same thing, we have destruction upon the fortress. So the fortress is a representation there of the strength. Uh, you know, you build up a mighty fortress, nobody can touch me now. Uh, my enemies aren't going to be able to tear down these walls. I'm safe. I am okay. I'm good. Well, God's 
judgment is going to come, and there is no human fortress or luxurious home, uh, to touch back to chapter 3 a little bit, that can save us from God's judgment. When the Assyrians come 40 years later, there's nothing that can stop that from occurring because it is the Lord's judgment. When the Christ comes for the last time on the last day, the strong aren't going to see it coming. They're not. There is no human fortress in this world that will be able to stand up against the angel armies. And so the great need then to seek the Lord and live, where else is that mighty fortress other than in him? Because there is no other fortress that will stand. Nothing is, is stronger than, than him, the one who created everything. So seek the Lord and live. Pastor Andrews, we have just under two minutes. I want to give you a, a shot here to, to hit anything that we didn't get or to, to summarize the morning for us. I like what you just did, calling us back to the theme that started it in verse 4. Seek me and live. Seek Yahweh and live. And we're going to see it again in 14 tomorrow likely, uh, seek good and not evil, that you may live. Uh, This is the Lord calling us to himself. So while there is a lot of note of judgment in this text, he is giving us the way out. He is giving us a refuge and a fortress, and it is him. He is the one to whom we turn, and he will protect us from the evil one. He will protect us from our own sin, and he has done so through his own son, Jesus Christ. That's the difficult thing of of looking at a minor prophet. It's the difficult thing of looking at a lot of the law-based heavy things in the Old Testament, you know, like the first few chapters of Leviticus. Nobody touches them. We don't know what to do with them. Well, look at these things in light of Christ. Uh, How does this text teach me about Jesus? How does this point me to Christ? And so here it is today. Seek the Lord and live. In Jesus Christ, all of your sins have been forgiven. Each and every one of them, the worst things that you could have ever possibly done or did do, he forgave them by his death on the cross. And he didn't stay dead. A couple of days later, he rose again. And in doing so, he has promised you new life. It's a wonderful gift. Pastor Steve Andrews is the pastor at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri, helping us this morning with Amos chapter 5, verses 4 through 9. Pastor Andrews, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Seek the Lord and live. In the Lord is life, and only in him is life. He's delivered that life to you in his son, Jesus Christ. He alone is your refuge, your mighty fortress. Seek him and live. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.